You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In 1075, the Republic of Venice and the Byzantine Empire cemented a strong alliance when the Venetian doge, or duke, Domenico Selvo, married the daughter of Emperor Constantine X. Ducas. The marriage afforded Venetian merchants a wide range of easy trade, increasing the wealth and prosperity of the nation, and Doge Selvo was looked upon as a great leader for it. Yet the same Venetians who praised Domenico despised his new wife, Theodora Anna Ducanoselvo. She was reviled by the people of Venice, rich and poor alike. It's really hard to overstate how much they hated her. Theodora died, probably of plague, a short eight years after the wedding in 1083, and the people celebrated her death. They celebrated the death of their queen, and it wasn't just street rabble, either. The Bishop of Venice at the time was named Peter Damien. He makes an appearance in Dante's Paradiso as one of the highest moral men to ever live, just short of Francis of Assisi. He was sainted in 1828. So what did the pious, wise, and wonderful Saint Damien have to say about Theodora's death? She got what she deserved. Theodora wasn't cruel, she wasn't stupid. She wasn't evil. But she did something that the public found unconscionable and unforgivable. The night of the wedding, at dinner, in front of the court, in front of the nobility, in front of the people, she used a fork. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. We are up to the third episode of our Kickstarter season. And as of the time of this recording, we're a little over 50% of the way there. And there are fewer than 20 copies of Counterfeits available. But for just the price of a couple pieces of silverware, you can get your name added to our website as a supporter of the show. The link is in the description or episode notes of the very thing you're listening to right now. Or just Google The Constant, A History of Getting Things Wrong, Kickstarter. Only one more episode and less than two weeks to go. And then I won't have to interrupt my cold opens like this anymore. Today's episode, What the Fork...
The only forkless world I can imagine is a world composed entirely of soup and sandwiches. Which, come to think of it, sounds delightful, honestly. But the fork is just so thoroughly useful. It can poke and spear, scoop and twirl, pile and portion. If we play a version of the Desert Island game where we're allowed only one utensil for the rest of our lives, I'll take fork every time. Unless sporks are fair game, but that feels like cheating. Yet, for hundreds of years, the fork had to fight a block-by-block war of attrition for the hearts and minds of Europeans. And look, I understand that many people in the world still don't use forks. That's understandable, because most of those people have some other good utensil. Frankly, if you're used to chopsticks, where you can gently finesse and lift food right up to your mouth, I understand that breaking and cutting and impaling it with a tiny trident might come off as a weirdly aggressive and unappetizing move. But Europeans of the Middle Ages didn't have some equally serviceable alternative to the fork. Instead, they just used their hands. Their filthy, dark-aged hands. Hey, uh, apropos of nothing, did you know that Europe didn't get toilet paper until 1857? I don't know why that just popped into my mind. Sure, they had spoons, and they had knives, which, if sufficiently pointy, could do some forkish work. But mostly they just picked stuff up with their grubby mitts and threw it into their mouths. It's not that they didn't have forks, or didn't know what forks were. They had them for cooking, putting stuff on forked spits, or for getting pickled fruits and veggies out of jars, or for serving stuff onto plates. But they absolutely, positively, would not be caught dead eating with them. Let's go back to Theodora. By the time she was being wished dead for using one, the Byzantines had been eating with table forks for at least a couple hundred years, back to the 4th century for sure, but possibly even further. Their innovation spread into Persia by somewhere in the 800s, and by the 10th century, a hundred years before its ignominious appearance in Venice, the fork was widespread throughout the Middle East. But still, Europe protested. The cautionary tale of God slowly striking down Theodora for her infraction was still being told at least 200 years later. But eventually, Italy began to crumble. Because not too long after Venice first scoffed at the implement, they discovered a new foodstuff. Pasta. It's not clear how pasta got to Italy. The most common explanation, that Marco Polo brought it back from his Chinese travels, doesn't hold up. People were already eating macaroni before Polo embarked on his travels, and the passage of his writing that seems to describe it actually refers to sago palm, a small palm tree that can be made into a stringy, starchy foodstuff that resembles, but definitely is not, pasta. Regardless of how they got it, by the 1300s, pasta was all the rage. But how to eat it? Knife? No good. Spoon? Barely better. Lifting fistfuls of macaroni into your mouth? No, that seemed gross even to them. So Italians looked around at what else they had in the kitchen and struck upon a great idea for a pasta tool. The skewer? Damn it, Italy. You were so close. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For a while, Italy used a single pointy chopstick to eat their noodles, poking the stubby ones and draping or wrapping the stringy kinds around the single time. But that didn't last long. Eventually, probably after struggling for 20 minutes to twist a single piece of spaghetti around a long pole, someone said, screw this, hand me that forky thing. And once they had their pasta twirlers already at the table, it was an easy enough leap to start using them for everything. By 1600, Italy had become the first European nation to fall to the forces of the fork. Once Italy had turned to forking, it was only a matter of time until the rest of Europe fell. After all, the royal families of the various nations and states were constantly intermarrying to build alliances. So, Catherine de' Medici infiltrated France with the fork in 1547, Duchess Beatrice spirits the fork to Portugal a few decades before that, and so on. But these were all artifacts. While a few royals succeeded in seeding the idea throughout Western Europe, the masses were still either unaware of or outwardly hostile towards the practice. This shows in the work of French writer Thomas Artoux, who published a castigating satire of Henry III, wherein he described the king and his court, saying, They would rather touch their mouths with their little forked instruments than with their fingers. Sick burr and Tom. But nobody hated forks like the English hated forks. Thomas Coriate, an English travel writer, saw Italians using forks in or around 1608 and was smitten by them. When he returned to England, he brought the custom with him, trying to convince the English to fork it. For his troubles, he was harassed mercilessly. The playwright Ben Jonson made fun of him in a play, and poet John Donne did the same, but in person. Coriate earned the pejorative nickname of Fursifer, a word that at once meant fork-bearer, rascal, and sounded like Lucifer. Elizabethans were hilarious, am I right? Still, Coriate's writings were popular, and though his habit of eating with a fork was at first thought of as an effeminate Italian affectation, by the 18th century, the tide had turned and the fork reigned supreme over all of Europe. It still took a while to catch on in the colonies, though, with the fork really only taking hold in North America around the time of the American Revolution. So, two questions. One, why were Europeans so allergic to forks for so long? And two, what changed? Let's tackle those in ascending order of interestingness. What changed? A few things. For one, forks got more useful. Most forks before the 1400s had only two prongs or tines, which were typically very long. And that's less comfortable both for picking stuff up and putting in your mouth. Three-prong forks began to ascend because of Italian pasta eating in the 15th century and our typical four-tine fork doesn't gain dominance until the 19th. It wasn't just the number of prongs, though. Until the mid-18th century, forks were flat rather than curved, 
From pommel to tip, flat. That was a disadvantage twice over. For one, flat forks weren't very good at scooping things. Derisive writings about disgusting fork eaters frequently speak of how much of their food ended up flying off onto floors or laps or mugs. Flat forks were also no good for eating out of bowls. And for most of the Middle Ages, everything was eaten out of bowls or straight from wooden tables, which sharp forks were also less than ideal for. Try eating a steak with a knife and fork from a bowl. If you hurt yourself in the effort, I accept no liability. China plates came up in Europe alongside the fork, and the two bolstered one another. So, forks weren't quite as cool and obvious at the time as they are now. But that still doesn't account for why St. Damien and Thomas and Ben Jonson were so overtly opposed to them. What was so wrong with forks that using one should constitute an insult, let alone a mortal sin? First of all, toxic masculinity. Going from the rough-and-tumble manliness of tearing meat apart with your grotesquely dirty digits to daintily picking it up with a piece of ornate metal was definitely super girly. Our two called the fork users of Henry's court hermaphrodites, which was offensive even at the time, if in a slightly different way. More importantly, though, using a fork was seen as immoral. You know who used forks? Muslims. And hey, come to think of it, you know who else used a fork? Satan. So, 13th century fork-using Spaniard, which are you? Hint, there is no right answer, and we've already executed you. But the main reason forks were seen as immoral is because of one man. And you're going to say, no way, Mark, this is too much. At this point, you're just nursing a grudge. Because it couldn't be, right? But it is. The primary reason Europeans hated forks was... Aristotle. Aristotle! According to Aristotelian teleology, everything had a divine and perfect design, built for a purpose. Sharks had their teeth under their snouts to keep them from eating too much. Birds had wings to fly. And humans had fingers to put stuff into their mouths. There was no way or reason to improve upon this. And to try was a modest and, to quote St. Damien, excessive delicacy. Truly, there was nothing that Aristotle couldn't fork up. I know, it's stupid, but that's the button. Remember, each donation to the Kickstarter, no matter how small, helps decrease the stupidity of episode tags and buttons going forward by giving me more time and effort to research and write the show. So please click the link in the show notes to check it out. Next week, we'll have a very special episode. It's our first Halloween story, and we'll mark the last few days of our fundraiser. I've wanted to tell this story for a straight-up decade now, so I'm really excited, and I think you guys are going to love it. Unless I mess it up. But let's hope I don't. Until then, from the home of Bubbly Creek, which still boils and rumbles from the animal fats and bloods dumped into it from the stockyards a hundred years ago, 
also known as the South Fork of the Chicago River. This has been The Constant.